Welcome to the Venue Solutions Podcast, where we talk about everything data center, information technology, cybersecurity, and more. I'm William, Venue's data center sales engineer and one of your hosts. Hi, I'm Eric Malatesta, Venue Data Center Infrastructure Manager and also one of your hosts. And I'm Michael Faisley, Venue's Network Infrastructure Manager and Cybersecurity Specialist. And I'm also one of your hosts. This is Venue Podcast number 81 for March 25th, 2022. In this podcast... Eric, Michael, and I discuss enterprise storage with Infinidat's field CTO, Ken Steinhardt. All this and more in the next Venue Podcast. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Venue or any guest's employer. And welcome to the Venue Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, William. I'm Eric. I'm Michael. Hey, guys. How's it going today where you're at? Right here in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, we're, we're doing this remotely, but uh, Michael and myself are having some extremely good weather here in, in Louisiana right now, So, and it's Friday, so we're getting ready to crank up the weekend. But uh, we wanted to get in a uh, another podcast. We had a good one uh, last time with the guys over at Zerto, and uh, we do have a special guest again on this podcast. We have Mr. Ken Steinhardt. Um, who is the field CTO of Infinidat, and today we're going to talk about storage. Ken, welcome aboard. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate you having me. Ken, we look forward to this one. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Ken, tell us a little bit about what you do at Infinidat, you know, maybe who and what is Infinidat, and and what you do there. Sure. Uh, Infinidat is a company that was started about 10 years ago by industry legend Moshe Yanai, who was the original creator of the EMC Symmetrics and then later the IBM XIV. And he'd actually retired. And it's kind of an interesting story how it all came about. He was pretty much done with the industry, had uh, really nothing left to prove to anyone. But his son was a genomics researcher, PhD obviously a field that uh, a lot of people can relate to in the last couple of years. And his son had been funded with a project and discovered that he thought that the vast majority of his funding for the project was going to get taken up almost entirely by storage requirements that he had. Oh, so storage is expensive. It was when he looked at it. Absolutely. It was very expensive. As a matter of fact, this was the challenge he gave to his father. He said, I'm going to bind here because I've got limited funding, but I've got real work and it's important work to do. But since it looks like storage is going to take up all of my budget, that's a problem. So here's my challenge to you. He said, I need performance that's as fast as anything in the market right now. I need faster than even all flash class performance. I need 100% availability all the time because genomics runs sometimes can run hours, days, weeks, et cetera, and you just can't afford to wait for something if it crashed to start it over again. Time to market is everything when it comes to pharmaceutical research. And he said, I also care only about petabytes. I don't care about terabytes or anything that small, even though terabyte is not a small number. He said, I care about things measured in petabytes at this kind of work. But here's the kick. There are good products in the market that are fast and can be made to be reasonably reliable and can scale reasonably large, and all of them are way too expensive for my budget. So is there a way to get something that is super fast, unbelievably reliable, 100% all the time that I can count on at multi-petabyte scale, but at a revolutionary lower cost so I can actually afford it? And his father said, you know, 
let me see what I can come up with. And he came up with a project concept. And then he realized, you know, there might be a few other people in the world that care about something like this, like, oh, the largest financial organizations in the world and the largest telecommunications companies in the world and uh, a whole lot of other interested parties. And so he brought together some of the best and brightest that he'd worked with in the past, and he started up a company. So we're focused exclusively in sort of the high end of the enterprise storage market. There are there plenty of other good companies that do entry-level storage and that do consumer products and do mid-range storage. That's not us. We care about things that are ultra high latency performance critical. We care about things where if they go down, it's going to be a more than just a really bad day for somebody. It just can't afford to ever go down. And we tend to do it at relatively large scale. But the key is we revolutionized this whole industry and changed it by being the first product that actually was affordable for going to that level of scale without compromising the performance or the availability. Absolutely. That's an amazing story and quite interesting. Um, you know, definitely a good story to hear about kind of how the evolution of the product came about. Um, and, and look, and you know, maybe we'll jump forward to the very end of this uh, presentation, but is he still with the business? He is. He sort of stepped back after he turned 70 because he'd already retired prior. And uh, he is still our chief technical evangelist. He tends to meet with engineering and product management about once a week or so and uh, gets to play uh, Yoda effectively. <laughs> That's coming amazing. In and being, the, being the great wise uh, individual that he is. And I had the privilege of working with him, which is how I wound up there back in the early days at EMC. So I was the original product marketing manager at EMC for the Symmetrix product. Uh, then over the years, after 20 years there, and I'd come there after, God, 16 years, a little over 16 years at Digital Equipment Corporation, and then 20 years at EMC, and then I retired. And then I got persuaded uh, after that to come out of retirement after about four years to Pure Storage, was there for a while, also a very good company. And then I found out about Infinidat and found out that Moshe had started up this other company and went, I can't pass up the opportunity to put the band back together. That's amazing. Yeah, I get often, I often talk to people about what would you do after you retire? And many times people in the IT industry, they go, I would still play with IT stuff. You know, I'd still do, I would still do the thing. I got into IT, you know, as a kid or, or early on and I still love it. So, um, but so today we're going to talk about. Yes, come I'm, on. I'm going camping and motorcycle riding. <laughs> well, that, you can do that too. I, you can do that too. Uh, I actually went to professional rock musician uh, world again. I started doing session work and playing with bands and recording, and oh, that's what nice. I'll do when I get out of this for the last time. The next time, nice. nice. Yeah, I'll, nice. I, I don't have my I have my my gear in the other room, but I play bass and and guitar, nice. so I have. We'll, we'll pull out his Rickenbacker. Yeah, I have a Rickenbacker base. 4001. It's a 4003S, which oh, is basically nice. which is basically a, uh, it's a it's a new version of the 4001. I know it. I'm I a big I'm a big base. Wings Beatles fan, so I wanted a Paul McCartney base. But the 4001s <laughs> are kind of the 4001s are kind of hard to come by. They're they expensive, and, and the pickups aren't quite aren't quite you know modern. Anyway, I digress. Um, so uh, the, I have a Music Man Stingray and a J oh, bass. Nice, nice, very That's nice. Awesome. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about storage, obviously, and <laughs> I think uh, you know we're going to talk about we're going to talk mainly about hard disk storage. So we won't be talking about 
things like floppy disks and, and or or disket diskettes as I talked about. We, we won't hey. talk about my my version of NT31 that runs on Deck Alpha, or we won't. But what Beautiful. we'll talk about is what is inside of something like an iPod, right? Which is mainly hard disk technology. And then as that relates onto that, we 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 think about you know where's the history behind hard di- hard disks, right? And, you know, you look at the first hard disks that are made in the mid-50s by IBM that, you know, weighed, yeah, that were size of refrigerators or two refrigerators. They weighed about a ton. They were very expensive, $10,000 per megabyte. And the maximum <clears throat> that you could get in these things were about five megabytes, not gigabytes, not terabytes, but megabytes. Oh, yeah. So it, it's very interesting that, you know, in those early days, um, the technology has changed, but at the heart of it, it's kind of stayed the same, right? We have a platter inside these these disk packs, and there's a head that goes back and forth and reads data um, that has been magnetically charged, you know, either positively or negatively, to, and that's how the disk is read, right? That's how data is read off of the um, off of the hard disks. So it's very interesting to see that. That technology has lasted this long. It's just gotten it's just gotten more dense and dense and dense. Now we have what Eric eight terabyte drives, you know, on up. I think. Yeah, I mean, we're well, in that state yeah. of the art these days. There's twenty terabyte individual HDZs shipping these days in volume. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and they try to keep in, you know, in in. 15 years ago, we heard, you know, SDD was going to replace HDD and, uh, you know, so solid state versus hard disk drives, spinning disk. And that just hasn't happened. The economics of it have happened because as solid state disks are getting cheaper, hard disk drives are getting bigger and they're actually getting faster. So, yes. oh, yeah, the, the technologies for both and as well, some other interesting technologies are coming down the road. And it's it's. It's interesting because sometimes if, you know, the old adage is if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail as opposed to all the tools that are in a toolkit. And there's a lot of different technologies and they all have their place in the market. So there's a place in the future for a long time to come for hard disks, for flash technology and solid state disks, even potentially for storage class memory, which has been emerging and Mm. still for DRAM and for other new interesting things on the horizon that'll make all of those technologies potentially better. Yeah, you know, I was looking at some of those kind of the future of storage, right? So you start looking at, um, was it like 3D, um, 3D storage blocks, which was, and I don't think that's the actual right term for it. And I forgot who is actually doing the... Um, you know, the you're talking about Optane 3D Crosspoint? Yeah, Optane Cross, yeah, 3D Crosspoint. Very interesting technology. Even if you start going into liquid state hard drives, right? Where you're actually doing like um, DNA based store data storage now this is way in the future but it's still very interesting that somebody in the world is actually working on this technology the one part that's interesting though is at least the connections have now standardized to a large degree back in those days you were talking about when the first discs came into the market and first storage devices of any kind came into the market 
everything was unique and proprietary to individual vendors. So if you dealt with vendor A, it had to be bought from vendor A. It's like the days before component stereos when you'd get a big wooden box and it had a turntable and an amp and a receiver and speakers, and it all came in one big wooden box and none of the pieces would ever talk to anything other than the ones in that wooden box. And just as the world of component music evolved to where there are now standards and everything plays nice with everything else, the same thing happened ultimately with technology. And in this case, of storage, a lot of standards for the interconnects evolved. So you got eventually to the world of SCSI was a big inflection point, and then multiple variations of that, ultra-wide SCSI, fast-wide differential SCSI, all of that, which then you had serial-attached SCSI and SAS and SATA, and now the big thing that'll be, you know, on the horizon going forward for pretty much everybody was originally intended just as a solid state technology, but it turns out it's good for everything, a little thing called NVMe, non-volatile memory uh, express. And the really good news about that is while the solid state community that did things like flash drives thought that, hey, this is going to be our interconnect, no one stepped back to say, wait a minute, but that's also good for hard drives. And the last version of the standard that came out with it, NVMe 2.0, actually now supports hard drives. So guess what? We're going to have, and this is good news for everybody in the industry, there's going to be standard ways to connect all this stuff together in the future. So it doesn't matter if it's flash disks or storage class memory or DRAM or hard disks or whatever, you're going to be able to choose whatever the best components are at any point in time and potentially integrate them very, very seamlessly. That's amazing. That's fantastic. That, that really is fantastic. I mean, s- standards really help everybody, Ken, like you said. It's, they do. It's everybody's life so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you see all those standards could go from your PC, your laptop, all the way into the storage networks and, and beyond. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, it all, it's all plug and play these days for the most part. Yep. And we started, so, we, you know, the, in the terms of the storage history, you know, we started with hard disks or HDD, right, which is a spin, a spinning spin a platter in a, in a head that goes back and forth and reads data oh, yeah. to something that's solid state where it's all done with digital circuitry, right? So there's no moving parts. And I think in terms of like desktop, laptop technology, that was huge. I don't know if there's any laptops that are made today that don't, <laughs> that don't use SSD, right? Um, right. And, you know, in SAN technology or, or storage technology for the enterprise, you know, definitely you'll have a mixture of maybe SSD for caching or or maybe primary storage as well as HDD. But now we're also looking at flash RAM or flash storage that is, is very similar to, um, you know, solid state, but it's definitely more akin to RAM. And definitely yep. much faster. And as you mentioned, NVMe, um, you know, M.2 and, and so on are extremely fast technologies. It's all good. And it's going to keep going. Uh, the, and as you say, the standards are what are going to make things play nice together. You also mentioned the networking aspect of it, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Because originally, of course, in when dinosaurs like me were in this business, um, disks connected only to a single server 
or, or rather to us yeah to a single processor effectively and that wasn't even a server in those days it was just a single processor the days of multiprocessors came afterwards and then the world of networking made it possible so i could now have multiple servers sharing in a storage network multiple storage devices and i start getting economies of scale and better utilization as well as higher performance and much greater flexibility and i can even start getting higher availability aspects associated with it we're now if i have multiple components Ooh, if something fails, something else can kick in. And that's where uh, you had things like RAID in the uh, late 1980s when that was first introduced. Suddenly, instead of, ooh, if a disk failed, I guess I have to wait now for someone to restore what was on that to a new one using tapes. And I wait for hours or days or weeks until that occurs. And I get back up and running after that. Suddenly it's now, oh, now I can actually protect devices such that if one of them fails, another one just kicks in and keeps running. And I don't have any downtime. I don't have any outage. And I probably don't even have that much of a slowdown, if any, in performance when it happens. And so we saw the evolution of those technologies come into play where suddenly the whole world started saying, hey, I no longer need these big, large, expensive disks. And suddenly I could have lots of low cost, inexpensive, small disks that could be virtualized to look, feel and run as if they were one single system. And that was that was really with the Symmetrics product where that became the sort of the catalyst that changed the whole market in the early 90s. The concept of saying, what if I could have a system that could talk instead of to just, you know, one vendor's server or processor, could talk to everybody's. And it could then virtualize itself so that it appeared as if it was just one great big storage device to those servers. But under the covers was dozens, if not hundreds, of little tiny inexpensive drives that actually had higher availability than those other big ones in the past, cumulatively could deliver greater bandwidth, cumulatively could deliver higher IOs per second, and then became the real big inflection point was, what if I could write software that starts intelligently mixing all of those devices with things like DRAM to start pre-staging data into DRAM before the servers have even asked for it. So when they go to look for something on a rotational disk, which operates in a relatively slower level of performance <laughs> than DRAM or CPUs, it's a such machine it's screamingly fast DRAM speeds and processor speeds. And it says <laughs> it expects to get data and expects to be waiting a while. And suddenly it goes, here it is, here it is, here it is. And it's like, whoa, blown away by the performance. And all of these things radically change the industry. And you hear people today talk about things like digital transformations, you know, this big thing of I'm going to take my business and now I'm somehow going to use digital technology to do things I couldn't do before. None of that ever would have happened if these technologies didn't suddenly get the performance level to be able to let this stuff happen in real time. Otherwise, we'd still be going to people in white coats and glass rooms with raised yeah. floors to say, here's my request and when can I get the information I'm requesting? Never yeah. would have happened if it wasn't for all of this massive continuous breakthrough of new technologies associated with storage. Because when, you know, when you talk about IT, you know, the technology is is a significant piece of it, but ultimately it's the information part of IT, that first word, this is the whole reason we do it. You know, I, I never once met anybody that said, how can I get as much expensive capital equipment as my accounts payable will afford? Instead, it's, I need something to support my information because that's what it's all about. So if I can get something that's economically viable and get a whole lot of information and disseminate it to people who need it, wow, that gives me competitive differentiation. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I want to go back one second here because while from in the future, Will, mental note, we have got to start videotaping this because if you could have seen Ken (laughs) while he was talking, this this would have been gold. Yeah, he was so excited. And and just the way he slowed things down while he was drawing the pattern of the disc, that that is that was gold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I t- we're, we have plans to do um, to do this on video, but we when we, when we start releasing them on YouTube, we actually want to use lower third graphics and actually make it look really yeah. really nice. So I'm still looking at different video editing software and and things like this. But everything that Ken was saying is suited for podcasts. Yeah, everything Ken was saying is great because he's right. I mean, it's what information is not going away, and 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 you know, as we know. We see libraries that are saved from thousands of years, libraries in the, in the old world with books in them, right? And then yeah. there's this gigantic outcry of cry, little crying when there's a library that burns down. Like, oh, my gosh, we lost this data that's in this library. Someone says, yeah, that that library had the only copy of such and such, right? You know. <laughs> People are crying about it, so so you can only imagine that if we if we have that kind of outcry for these old technologies, the, this current technologies are going to continue to grow and grow and grow, and and, and no one's going to ever want to throw away a new. And we know this. It's, no one, no. Ha, go go to your mom's email and see how many emails are in the email, how many emails unread that's junk mail that's still sitting there, right? There's not even yep. junk mails being deleted. <laughs> So people just don't throw things away anymore because it's digital. It's, it doesn't cost anything. It's digital. It's just as an email, Eric. It's not, that that doesn't cost me anything. But it, in the background, you know, Kins and Williams and Michaels and Eric's of the world, we're like going, how do I get more? T- how do I crush this email a little bit smaller so I can get it onto a storage device? What's funny? And save it forever. What's funny, Eric? You, you talk about libraries. <laughs> I actually went to a library a few weeks ago, but it wasn't actually use anything it was for nostalgia purposes <laughs> you know i wanted to go to the library to like i was like i talked to my wife and i was like hey let's go to the library she goes what library why would we go there i'm like i don't know let's go look at let's go read a newspaper you know we haven't <laughs> when's the last time you've actually opened up an actual newspaper or, or a magazine and she goes that's a little weird but okay let's go and we actually went to the library and sat around, but it wasn't for necessarily that we needed to. It was like nostalgia, which is really weird. We left and we went, you know, we haven't been to a, a library, you know, before today in like five years. Yeah. Well, here's what so, changed in that space. Actually, a curious subject. One of my daughters has a master's in library and information sciences, and she's actually the regional librarian in a high school in mm. here in Massachusetts. And I say library and information sciences because by the time she was becoming a student of the science of library, it was all going digital. And so most of what she does is beyond the conventional hard copy books is showing people how to use the web to get information yeah. and showing people how to use digital tech technologies to be able to do things. And so the whole nature of what we consider to be a library, exactly like you described, uh, the old anachronism is going to go away and it's going to become a digital world, but the concept stays the same. It's where do I go and how do I find a massive amount of information that I'm looking for? And uh, those, those concepts don't fail and they don't, uh, they don't go away. Yeah. What's funny yeah. is uh, uh, um, I was doing a little research for the podcast and they, and someone had, had, had postulated that in 2016, the size of the size of the internet was about 1.2 billion gigabytes. 
And that was in 2016. <laughs> and that was a very, right. I think that was a very conservative number. But that, that's amazing, the amount of digital information that we have floating around, you know, online or even, you know, on, on systems that are closed. And it's only going to accelerate. I think the most current stat I saw was that 90% of the world's digital information was created in just the last two years. That's crazy. And the that though that and it won't be long before it'll be it occurred in the last one year then it'll be it occurred in the last six months um it's right right there's no end in sight yeah so definitely the the innovation uh, you know the acceleration of innovation and new technologies and dense storage and vast storage and smart storage is, is continuing so you know we did we talked about hard disks solid state disks flash disks we talked a little bit about you know how to connect you know, multiple, you know, when you talk about multiple disks and building RAID or redundant redundancy, yep. we also talk about, you know, in the enterprise, we have SANS and NAS, right? So we right. have storage, atta- we have um, uh, storage attached networks and also network attached storage, right? And a lot of times people will kind of talk about SANS is either, and I think there's some, you know, debate, is it storage area network or is it storage attached network? Um, so there's always debate, right? Which came first and, and which is which. But um, typically when we talk about storage attached network, we're talking about storage that uses multiple disks that build these RAID groups or volumes. And then that's attached locally to a server, right? Through, you know, iSCSI, Fiber Channel, uh, Serial ATA. Um, sure. You know, even iSCSI, which is sort of network, but it's actually emulating a SCSI, um, a SCSI protocol over a, net- right. over a network. And then we have network-attached storage, which is kind of working like a server serving up file data. It can also do some block stuff, but typically you're thinking about in a network uh, file system, NFS, SIFS, uh, Samba, it's yep. actually working like a file server to give give users access to that data. I think you know if you were to boil it down to the those two systems, the difference between those two systems is when you think of a SAN, you think of a system of of disk that you can lay down anything upon, and when you think about a NAS, you think about a system that already has a file system laid upon it that you're going to utilize. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll give you a, a personal perspective on it that I. I postulated on literally when Ethernet was first coming into the market. And I said it then, and I still believe it's true today. Similar to the fact that it's it's not a question of necessarily one versus the other, as some usually that have a, a particular bias tried to push things towards like hard disk versus flash or whatever. There's a place for both. The difference to me between what became the fiber channel standard and the Ethernet standards is fundamentally fiber channel, when you really net it out, it's greatest strength, it's really good at doing smaller numbers of really large things really well and suits itself well to bandwidth, to online transaction processing, a lot of things like that. Ethernet is very, very good at doing large numbers of very small things incredibly well. And it turns out that there's more than enough applications to go around than I believe always will be for both of those technologies to have a very strong place in the market. And they they can go hand in hand in the better technologies and storage in the market, and that's usually the case. But even they are now evolving to yet a combined 
new world of standardization there. I mentioned NVMe earlier. NVMe was created originally for the PCIe bus, for internal servers and PCs and things like that, to be able to get super high speed and greater parallelism and all this great stuff is the next big thing for interconnects. But somebody realized, wait a minute, what if we were to take that kind of protocol and put it on the front end of storage as well to talk to the servers through the networks? So you're going to see over what I believe will happen in roughly the next five years period of time, looking forward into the future, you're going to see the standard way that servers will communicate down to storage is also going to be a variant of NVMe called NVMe over fabrics. And you're going to see a couple of flavors that are going to be very popular that will run on Ethernet, like TCP. So you'll be able to throw it right onto your existing networks. You won't have to change anything if you've been running Ethernet in the past. Same HBAs, same paths, same front ends, same everything. It'll just be ridiculously faster. And you'll see also the potential for, in particularly in scientific and a lot of ultra-performance-oriented applications, for RDME over converged Ethernet, better known as ROC-E. And in the fiber channel world, you'll see NVMe over fabric supporting fiber channel. And so, again, it's going to be one of those cases of the two kinds of fundamental interconnects it's not going to be a case of one versus the other. They're both, in my opinion, going to survive, and they'll both have their places uh, for different applications, different environments, and even often in the same organizations. But the protocol that's going to be running over both of them over roughly the next five years' time frame, it's going to be NVMe. Yeah, yeah, I see the same thing. Uh, you know, that technology came out of nowhere a few years back and has really stormed to the front. And, and it offers so much more for, our, you know, uh, for everyone, really, and, and for the host connectivity. And, and you said something that I, I want to key in on because you were talking about uh, iSCSI. And yeah. you also used the word HBA. And it's really yep. funny because I, I talk to a lot of people. They don't run true HBAs. They're just using their NIC. Yes. Yeah, right? Yes. Uh, and so I'm always like, well, you're not getting right. the benefits of the iSCSI that you really want. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's <laughs> it's all a case of terminology. And uh, what's the best thing to use for the right problem? Solve the right problem with the right tool. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we definitely talk about storage. We talk about the ubiquity and, and just the, the amount of storage that people are coming up with. But the thing also <laughs> we have to remember is, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity, right? Oh uh, yeah. Not only are we protect not only are we just storing data, large vast amounts of data, but we're having to protect that data. We're having to have backup copies or snapshots of that data and and Michael being, you know, working heavily in the cybersecurity world will attest that we've seen so much explosion of disk storage just for the standpoint of data protection, you know, either backups or or various <laughs> snapshots for um cybersecurity purposes. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's probably the hottest single subject out there right now because of all of what everybody's seen in the world going on with ransomware. The reason ransomware has been so hot is because the bad guys are winning and you got to stop them. And we will stop them. But there's really a couple of aspects that play into that. And I, I think you're absolutely right. First is the fundamental protection of the data, even if there weren't any bad guys. You commented earlier that, uh, hey, you know, if you only had one copy of something in a library and it burned down, it's gone. You just can't function that way with digital data anymore. As a matter of fact, even RAID protection is not enough. To me, the way you do it, and most, most of the large organizations in the world do tend to run an infrastructure that looks like this, is you want to have active, active communication between 
different places where your data gets written, regardless of the servers that are writing it at one location or another, typically the, the laws of physics let you do this in a metropolitan area. If you're within maybe about 100, 150 miles or so, you can put together a configuration. So let's say you have two different data centers that are 50 miles apart. Any data that's written to one is instantly confirmed to the other before it's told before the server is told that the data has been received. And the same thing can happen on the second site. It can be receiving data in real time that's confirmed to the first site. And you can be reading and writing from both sites at the same time. And today the technology exists, and it's actually been one of the hottest things that we do, such that if you were to lose anything, servers, network, storage, interconnection between the two sites or whatever else, with no human intervention and no stoppage or slowdown, anything that's still alive is still running. You don't lose any data ever, and you never have to take any downtime or outage, and you don't need a physical human being to intervene to execute you know, disaster recovery procedures. Things just keep running. However, while that technology works really well today in a metropolitan area, the catch is what if you get a tornado or you get a flood uh, down where you guys are in Baton Rouge? I know you know all about what I'm talking about. Yeah, and so absolutely. if you get something that comes through that is going to affect an entire region, that's where asynchronous replication technologies come in, which when done right, work hand in hand with the active active replication in your metropolitan area so that you can have a third data center or a fourth data center with a third copy or even the best site companies in the world do a fourth copy of that data in completely different places. So we're talking four different data centers where four different copies of the data are going to be stored and protected individually on those sites with things like RAID, but such that nothing is going to take you out. Human error is not going to take you out if you do things coupled with that, like create immutable snapshots, which comes into play here. And now we're starting to, to seethe into the cybersecurity aspect of it. Immutable snapshots were created for compliance reasons many, many years ago. And the beauty of an immutable snapshot is it's a snapshot of your data you can take at a point in time. And the best practice is to take them very frequently, multiple times during the day. We have customers that do it every 15 minutes, take entire copies of their entire data structure. Because it's not a thing you have to, you don't have to slow down to do it when done right. You don't have to stop anything. You just take a, a copy of it. But what makes it immutable is it can't ever be changed. You can't delete it. You can't change it. A bad actor, even if they got a hold of it, can't do anything to stop it. So what that means is if you've got immutable snaps, people used to do this for compliance reasons to guarantee to the government that, hey, my data is absolutely here. I can always recover it. I can always retrieve it. These days, it's been flipped on its ear. The whole purpose of immutable snaps is to protect against ransomware. If you're not running, anybody who's listening to this, if you are not running immutable snaps in your environment today, you need to talk to these people and you need to get immutable snaps because they will allow you to tell the bad actors if you are hit with ransomware, if you've done things right, to go take a hike and you can thumb your nose at them because you can say, I don't care that you just corrupted my primary copy of data and have encrypted it and have tucked it away. I know you can't touch my immutable copies. And if I have access to that and they were just from 15 minutes ago, I didn't lose that much data. And I'm going to tell you to, you know, where you can put your ransomware <laughs> request. Right, yeah. right. Yep. In it's, fact, you know, we just you know, we just got a, right before this call. I had one of my customers uh, email me saying, "Hey, well, let's talk about immutable backups." In which case, we all have to. We, in fact, this was we, kind of this has been a running joke on running, our podcast. Running my podcast. And every time we hear immutable, we have to take a shot. You know, 
<laughs> because it's I like the, it. the, the buzzword of, of the day, but it actually is but, very, very important. And we but important t- to that, that, that totally immutable piece is be- before we had immutable and you were talking about this a second ago, Ken, is that, you know, yeah. Hey, you, what you should have is you should have a, a stretch network and you should have a, a saying yeah. in one location, say in another location. I actually, in, in, in early two thousands, I had a client, uh, which will name will remain nameless, but they had, a need for like near 100% uptime yep. and they wanted me to design some storage for them. And I said, well, what we're going to do, and this was right up your alley is we're going to buy two Clarions, right? <laughs> yep. We're actually, we're, oh, we're going to actually buy three. So we're going to buy three Clarions. We're going to take two of them. We're going to put them in the building and they're going to be synchronously replicated. Right. Yep. And then we're going to put a third one across the city in this other data center. And that's going to be your, your asynchronous uh, replication, right? Because in the time we didn't, we, we couldn't quite do synchronous across the link like that. Yep. So, so we, so we'd be able to have two storage devices in the same building. I could patch one or the other independent of the, of each other with zero downtime. And I could still have complete building failure and have the asynchronous copy, which was maybe yep. seconds behind. I don't yeah. know how far it was. It wasn't very sure. far behind. Yep. So we were still, we were doing those kind of things back then too, but that does not protect you from what we were talking about here this last second, which was I, someone crept my data, someone steals my data, all that data just replicated and it's gone, right? So yeah, exactly. your, 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 your piece example. comes to play. Yeah, exactly. That, in your example, I, a few seconds after they corrupted the one in the yeah. primaries, it's only going to be a few seconds later when they just got yeah. a hold of one on the remote. Boy, you hit on right. something really critical, yeah. which is not only do you need to have those immutable snaps, but you also hit on something else that's critically important, which Backup and recovery doesn't go away as a result of this. It just got even more important because that's your standard infrastructure. But beyond that, you always want to be able to have additional copies that are for your true backup in case all of your primary sites or whatever were corrupted. You've got Mm -hmm. something you can recover from where you're also taking immutable snapshots. And if you're doing it right there, one of the big lessons learned in the last few years with ransomware is these ransomware attacks sometimes will sit dormant waiting to launch for weeks or months. So you need to be able to have the potential to figure out when did it actually occur and when it did, it's probably not the most recent one necessarily that I want to recover from, where in the past it would be default. Hey, whatever my last one that has the least data loss, I'll just put that one in. Now, that one could be corrupt too. So what you want is a fenced-off network, a fenced-off sandbox, where you can verify that the one you want to recover from is the right one to bring forward. And all of these technologies have totally thrown this whole industry on its ear in the last couple of years. The good news is, is there's great technology out there to make it happen, but I advise people to say, hey, put up, you know, the best front end defenses that you can, you know, do everything you can to try to block attacks, do everything you can to try to identify them when they occur, do everything to try to mitigate them when they happen, but assume the worst. You know, Andy Grove was right in his book, only the paranoid survive and assume that it's not a question of if you will be compromised. It's the smart CISO, the smart CISO that says, I assume we will be compromised no matter how good a job I do on everything else. So I'm going to be prepared to recover and recover with the least amount of impact and the least amount of detriment to my organization as fast as possible with technologies that will let me 
either recover from a site failure, a attack, and I and it's it's not enough to just do the immutable snaps. You still need to have that backup and restore environment and the integration there. You want to have your belt and suspenders, and then a second pair of suspenders on top of them. Exactly. You know, so it, we always think, say we always say copy it to floppy disk, and then there's a little notch that you can flip up, yeah, and it makes it where no one can write to this again. Immutable. Yeah, I'll date myself here. What I the way we used to deal with that when I started in IT, when I'm talking 800 BPI tapes, <laughs> 556 BPI tapes, was you'd take a little plastic ring, ultra high tech device. It was a little plastic ring. You'd put it into the hub of the tape, and if it was in the hub of the tape, there would be a little mechanical piece of metal that would look to get into that groove. And if it couldn't get into that groove because that piece of plastic was there, basically that meant, oh, I can't write over this tape, even though somebody mounted it and tried to write to it. Nope, can't write over it. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, you know. And, and Eric and I, I, I don't, I'm not, I won't speak for, for for Michael, but Eric and I grew up in that era of the heyday of of microcomputing and and so on and so forth. And, yep. Eight bit, sixteen bit, thirty two bit computers. Um, yeah, there's sending, actually sending the message, sending the message on the mainframe for somebody to mount my thesis, and then waiting like you know <laughs> four hours. My other computer yeah. was a vac station. You know, it's like true, true story. I worked on one of the systems I worked on in the mid early seventies was a, um, I worked on IBM 360 Mod 40, then a 37138. Uh, and when we got the 37138, they said it was going to have 128 gigabytes of storage, or 100, excuse me, 128 megabytes, kilobytes, kilobytes. I'm really getting sloppy on this. <laughs> kilobytes of main memory storage. And I thought, why in the world would we ever need 128 <laughs> kilobytes of storage? We've yeah. never written any programs that large. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We grew up. Eric and I grew up in the days. I think of like Commodore sixty fours and Vic twenties and oh, MFM yeah. MFM drives, and you know, so well, definitely interesting times. It's taking my my uh, my uh, Star Wars game and putting it on a little cassette and <laughs> put it in the cassette deck and say load and then go out and play cassettes. football for thirty minutes. Oh yeah, cassette decks yeah, before, before oh, floppies. Yeah. There was cartridges yeah. and cassettes were data, big. But, data sets. But I think everything that we're talking about here is interesting and. and and, and the scary part of everything we're talking about is we've said this so many times in the past 10 minutes, man, how many copies of this data we're going to have and how, how costly is all those copies going to cost us? Right. right? That's so one I, of the reasons why, you know, at Infinidat, we've sort of thrown this whole industry on its ear. Um, it used to be that you had to compromise between the performance and the availability and the cost. Mm -hmm. And that's been sort of the hallmark of why we've been growing as fast as we have and grew 40% last year. Well, why we don't we found take that a, a perfect chance for us to take that, give us a, a rundown of your, your suite. You kind of already told us the history yeah. of, you know, how you guys came to be and who, who y'all are now. But why don't you kind of give us a rundown of the, of the suite of products you guys have? Sure. Here's how it all started. That product that I alluded to that Moshe and I and his team created back then, the way he solved the problem was he said, I'm going to do it through software, not through hardware. I'm going to use nothing but all commodity hardware components in the market. So I'm going to be able to use the cheapest, most available uh, components. I'm going to allow multiple vendors to compete for who gives us those components. And I'm going to create a caching architecture, not a tiering architecture. Now, what do I mean by that? Still to this day, the fastest thing that you can put bits into is DRAM. So the front end of our product is DRAM cache. But we use it as a cache, not as a permanent place, but as a temporary place. 
Anytime a server talks to our system, it sees nothing but DRAM at DRAM speeds. DRAM is an order of magnitude faster than even storage class memory, let alone NAND flash, let alone hard disks. But we then complement it with a second level of cache, a read cache only, of conventional solid state disks, NAND flash, but where all the actual data gets stored on the primary product, dirt cheap near line SAS stuff you were talking about earlier that's really big capacity, really cheap. So what this lets us do is have a very inexpensive product. But when you think, hey, a system that's storing all the data on hard disks, how can that be fast? Software, software, software. So our whole IP and our whole value is something called neural cache, which is software that is going to intelligently figure out what to put into that ultra super fast DRAM, which is the only thing that talks to the server before the server even knew to ask for it. Now we do this by secret sauce. We've got patents associated with artificial intelligence, patents associated with true machine learning and patents associated with true deep learning that make us unique in being able to apply intelligence of software. So I'm going to throw out some insane, crazy numbers here. You guys are going to look at me like I have lobsters <laughs> flying out of my ears. I'm totally nuts when I say this. When you write to our product, any writes that come in from the server, 100% of the writes are written and protected at DRAM speed, and the confirmation back to the server is complete when we've received it and protected it in two separate controllers in DRAM, which means double-digit microseconds. Now, traditional storage is measured in milliseconds. This is an order of magnitude faster. 100% of our writes, which means on writes, 100% of the time we're going to be faster than a conventional all-flash array. On reads, this is the one that's going to make it sound like you will say this guy is totally nuts and he's, he's completely insane. Most of our customers tend to see read cache hits that are measured in the mid to high 90th percentile. And it's because of intelligence of patented software that figures out what should I keep in cache, how long should I keep it there, what other pieces of data should I associate with it. So we only have to go to that back end of the conventional disks to read from them low single digit percentage of the time. So the aggregate performance is something where the vast majority of the reads and writes, 90% of them typically plus, are served at something that is ridiculously faster than flash. And a single digit percentage of them are served at something that is substantially slower than flash. <laughs> but the aggregate for the overwhelming 95% of the world's applications is more than acceptable. However, We've created a variation of it because there is that two, three, four, maybe at most 5% of ultra high performance applications in the world where people said to us, hey, if you could give me that kind of performance close to 100% of the time, if you build it, I will come. So what we did was we created a version of the product, same software, same architecture, same functionality, same everything. All of that's included, as a matter of fact. We don't nickel and dime on that stuff. All feature functions standard included. But we created a version where instead of those dirt cheap nearline SAS drives on the back end, we put in honest-to-goodness standard commodity solid-state disks, NAND flash. And that means also we actually could take the cost down a little because we no longer need that secondary read cache of NAND flash because now the slowest device on our system is as fast than what is typically the fastest device on an all-flash array. 
So now we have a different value proposition with that product, which is for comparable to maybe even still a little lower cost than traditional all-flash arrays, we will absolutely smoke anything in the market on performance. That product has yet, and I don't say this lightly, has yet to lose a real-world customer benchmark against any other storage product in the world. Everything that we have benchmarked and compete against and I don't say that lightly. It's not we win most of the time. We have won every single performance benchmark that thing is competed on. And then when they come back and tell us, and you were also less expensive than the stuff that we were looking at, that's good. The third piece of the puzzle is the other extreme, backup and restore. We took the exact same product, the one with the hard disks in the back end, so it's still dirt cheap, and that can intelligently read and write at cache speeds, and we front-end it with three redundant dedupe engines. So we get massive backup dedupe performance using literally the same algorithm as the the 800-pound Gorilla most popular product in the market because there is a lot of commonality there. But we're able to massively outperform anything else for both backup speed and most importantly, restore speed because the system will very intelligently figure out very quickly, oh, I'm reading this thing sequentially. I'm reading this whole volume. Start feeding it all into cash before it's been asked for and delivered at DRAM speed on a restore. Plus, we put in some cyber resilience features into it, like I alluded to earlier, and this is unique to our product, I believe, right now. A third of those three dedupe engines that front-end what's going on, one of them is never, ever visible to the backup software and the backup engines and the stuff that's actually feeding it. So if you had a bad actor that came in and attacked your primary data and also was smart enough and good enough to get to your backup device and potentially try to encrypt and corrupt your backup stuff, first of all, we're going to have immutable snaps there. And then we can take the one that we want to deal with and start you know, determining scientifically which one to bring in. We can send it to a fenced off area that no way know how the bad actors are going to be able to see or touch no matter what they do. And so those two products, same architecture, same software, we're not going to you know, divert ourselves from what we do into the entry and mid-range of the market. We do high-end enterprise stuff, but people that care about performance, care about continuous availability, and care about keeping their business running, um, that's what we do. And then yeah, t- and on a, on a little bit of a nerdy tech side here, just because yeah. I fairly familiar with your system cool you know some of the things you guys do are, are is, is pretty cool so so you know and this probably could be new for michael and, and will but you know like let's, let's just say i bought a an infinidat the way yep. it works is they, they they build it they they put it in a rack they configure everything they ship the whole rack to me yep that rack has got everything i want into it and at the very top of the rack there's some plugs that all i have to do is walk up to it plug in my network plug up my fiber channel i'm done you Literally, got it. That's it. Incredible it, simplicity. Simplicity. Yeah. Simplicity. We design, have virtualized yes. the entire back end. So things that traditional storage administrators have had to do forever, like choosing RAID groups and choosing even a RAID level or placement of data, totally virtualized, totally done for you intelligently. Never any hotspots to worry about from a performance perspective. The system will balance itself automatically. All of that traditional storage administration are things that, you know, our users go, why would anybody want to do that anymore when you don't have to? Well, uh, and also you guys have a fan. I was, I was watching some previous videos um, about Infinidat and the burn-in time. 
that you guys yeah. do before the data, before the the, the gear oh, yeah. even reaches a customer. This we is torture not, these things. Oh, these things have been yeah. yeah. These things have been thoroughly tested. I think was three weeks or three months. I forget how long, but they're sitting yeah. there running and not just okay. They're powered on and the discs are available. You guys are actually loading it with data and pulling data off and on to really stress test the discs, the controllers, it, the different. Absolutely, you know. it's true. The reason is that all too many vendors, and I've seen others that do this. The attitude is in getting a product out the door. Um, what can we do to quickly verify that it works so we can ship it. Our attitude is let's not ship anything till we've tortured this thing beyond <laughs> comprehension and we're confident that it is rock solid because our customers demand nothing less. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And in 2022, the storage controller became self-aware. <laughs> you know, it's getting, it's getting scary how smart our storage is getting these days. So, you know, Infinidad for primary storage for virtualization and databases and ultra high performance. But yeah, in, the, in the same product suite, you have things for secondary storage, storage tiering, backup, you know, backup repositories, backup storage. And then um, you guys also have something for big data and cloud, I believe, right? Yeah, all, all one architecture, all one uh, set of base code, which also enables us to get new feature and function out pretty quickly. When you've only got one architecture and one core operating environment of software to work with, that means your time to market in continuing to accelerate new feature function is just fundamentally, and it stands to reason, it's, it's faster than people that are burdened with multiple products and multiple architectures. It makes you guys super efficient. You're you're, you're focusing mean. on one thing. Your your attention is not spread. Okay, well, I have this product over here and this product over here, and I have all these different development teams. It's it's laser focus. Absolutely. We're not doing servers. Go and buy the best servers from whoever you think makes the best servers in the market. We're not doing networks. Go and buy the best network stuff. Go and buy the best databases. Buy the best pieces that you guys believe are the best ones that are there. We'll take care of the storage. Yeah, and that's definitely a resounding uh, idea that we have here at Venue is we always look for what's the best in breed, whether if it's storage or compute or virtualization, and, and we bring that to the customer. As it should be. It's like the analogy I gave earlier of the stereo systems. You would, Who would go out and buy, you know, one of those big wooden boxes where every single component is from the same company? You know, whoever makes the best speakers doesn't necessarily make the best amps, who doesn't necessarily make, you know, the, you know, the best turntables, who doesn't necessarily make the best, you know, Blu-ray player or whatever it might be. Right, right. Well, We're can, saying buy, buy the best to breed and they're all going to plug and play. Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, Ken, thank you so much. I, I think we're going to wrap it up today. Uh, this has been a, a fantastic podcast. We love talking to people who are passionate about about their their product, and, and um, we definitely feel and next, that. Next time we have you on, Ken, we're going to have video going because <laughs> because I got to get this stuff, the, the, these this excitement captured. <laughs> Absolutely. No worries. Your grandkids Gentlemen. are going to love it. <laughs> I've got five of them. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Nice. All right, guys. Well, everyone have a great weekend. Thank you so much. As always, um, our podcast can be found at uh, venue.com slash podcast, but there we can also be found on the Apple uh, podcast store, uh, uh, Stitcher radio, tune in, uh, Spotify, all available uh, for your, your listening uh, pleasure and, and, and ease of use. Um, 
As always, we like to hear back from our customers. So if you want to engage with us, you can email us at podcast at venue.com or go to venue.com slash podcast. And there's a link to um, send us a message through the web. So everyone, thank you so much. Ken, it's been a pleasure. Eric and Michael, thank you, Ken. as always. Pleasure has been mine. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Appreciate guys. it. Have a great Thanks, weekend, Eric. guys. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye.